0: Book Talk Conversation. I'm Christopher G. Moore. I'd like to invite you to join me on Book Talk Conversations, where I turn back the clock, asking an original thinker to discuss their childhood reading. I dig deep into the guest's early books. Follow me down the rabbit hole with a distinguished guest from various fields in the arts and sciences. What I'd like to do is maybe start with a little bit of, a, of an introduction for, uh, for viewers. I think uh, uh, most people will know uh, your reputation, particularly as a very successful novelist and as a, a physicist, a scientist of, uh, of considerable reputation as well. Uh, You uh, did your PhD at Caltech, your undergraduate at Princeton. You've been on the faculties of Harvard and MIT. And as far as I can see, the only person who's ever had a joint appointment, both to the science and the literature department uh, at MIT, uh, and someone who's very comfortable in both of those uh, domains. And I I think that's, a really good place to to start is with your sense of the book "Living with the Genie: uh, Essays on Technology and the Quest for Human Mastery." One of the reviews I read, I, I liked very much. Is Lightman reminds us of our deep need for silence, solitude, and stillness. I put that with that with that uh, f- with fun. Is that I think. Maybe that this is the way for sanity, if we were better able to have these moments of silence and solitude, which is a very Buddhist way of being in the world, along with that sense of abandonment, of fun, where there isn't a task, where there isn't something that you must accomplish.
1: Yes. Well, I totally agree with you. And I think that the world has gotten far too fast for its own good. Um, With the high speed of of communication now, the the pace of life has always been regulated by the speed of communication. And since uh, just in the last 30 or 40 years, the speed of communication uh, with the new technology has increased exponentially Uh, in 1985, When the internet was first becoming widely available, uh, you could communicate information at about a thousand bits per second. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and now it's 1 billion bits per second. Uh, we just rushed around too fast, looking at our, our smartphones every five minutes, uh checking off items on our to-do list we, we our lives are so scheduled we we've broken up our day into 15-minute units of efficiency and we, we we've we've compromised our ability to think about who we are and what's important to us uh, and to have fun uh to waste time to let our minds wander and just think about think about nothing in particular um, we need those those moments in the day to 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 consolidate our self identity and to know who we are. And uh, the Buddhists have known for uh, over a cent two two centuries uh, two I mean sorry two millennia yeah. that the mind
0: needs to rest. Yes, exactly. It's exactly right. It's the the, the mindfulness. Um, the mindfulness, yeah, yeah, uh, which is a very important concept in Buddhism. But so I, I, I think this is going to be a very interesting discussion that we're about to get into. Is I know from uh, what you've uh, said before that as a child, you built rockets and you wrote poetry. So you basically were riding both horses: the science and the the arts horse from a very early age. Uh, so I think maybe we can just kind of start there because from, from your reading list that you sent me, which is a very interesting reading list, I, I can see certain similarities from the science side going into the literary side. There is There are definite connections uh, that That exists. Like one of the things that uh, I know you've uh, talked about before was your love of geometry, uh, particularly the precision and the elegance and the beauty of angles, and algebra, the the world of abstraction, the world of a equals b. That those two two things fired you up from a very early age. So, I mean, w- one, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, is there a geometry of literature?
1: Well, I think that that literature thrives on ambiguity. Um, ultimately, in my view, literature is about human beings, and human beings are very complex, complex, uh, It's not a question, a human being is not a question with an answer. Uh, And when you read a novel, uh, if you know everything about the character, and you know how the character is going to behave in every situation, then the character becomes dead. That human beings have layers of complexity, and even the writer of a novel, uh, shouldn't and usually doesn't know understand the characters fully so i think that that it's it's an interesting contrast with the precision and certainty of mathematics uh that the arts uh, well you started talking about literature but i think we could extend that to all of the arts have a, a fundamental ambiguity which is part of the attraction and the beauty uh and the mystery of of the arts
0: it's it's interesting because one one of the things i think you've done in your writing is you've been able to create a bridge from a world which seeks to define everything as you've you've said before where a novelist leaves the undefined leaves the reader to bring their own sensibility to construct from their own life experience what emotional reactions are valid and whether they actually comply with the human condition as as most people would understand that, that there's a theory of mind that the reader brings to the theory of mind of the character.
1: Yes. Yes, I think um, that, uh, that a, a good novel is not, Completed until it's read by a reader, and and every reader completes the novel in a different way uh, from with their own experiences. When when I first started writing fiction, having written nonfiction for a long time, I had the habit of using topic sentences with each paragraph, and and we learn in in, in high school yeah. that that good expo- in good expository writing, you start each paragraph with a topic sentence, which sort of names the idea of the paragraph and sort of provides guideposts to the reader uh, at the very beginning. But in fiction, topic sentences are fatal because you don't want to tell your reader how to think about the experience before she starts on that journey. You, you want your reader to be blindsided and, and to just be part of the creative process. And and create the scene with you, the writer. And you don't want to tell the reader how to think about the trip before she's even started. So I had to dis, uh, disabuse myself of the habit of starting the topic sentences.
0: <laughs> Which makes a nice little bridge uh, between your two halves, your early role models in terms of, of writing. Uh, I think is a good place to start. I know you you have mentioned before Lewis Thompson and Steve J. Uh, Gould, uh, along with uh, John McPhee, Al, and Dillard, Barry Lopez, James Gleck, uh, Richard Preston, in terms of the nonfiction as a kind of a, I guess all writers, in a sense, look for mentors in the past that they believe have, a way of communicating important information, particularly in a nonfiction setting. And those are the ones, the, right. the writers uh, I know you've mentioned before. And on the fiction side, uh, I, I have a lot of similarity, uh, I, I think, w- with you in terms of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, George Luis Borque, uh, Italiano. Uh, Calvino, Primo Lev, uh, Levi, oh, and Salomon Rushdie. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's an interesting contrast those two groupings of writers who are kind of the touchstone for your own sensibility as a science writer as opposed to as a fiction writer. I mean, the. One of the things that's very interesting about the nonfiction list of writers is the high degree of precision and accuracy they bring. I mean, Barry Lopez in particular brings an unbelievably beautiful, elegant language and uh, lucidity to what he talks about as well in terms of nature writing. Uh, and J- James Gleck as well, like in Chaos, is able to take something. Incredibly difficult, a like chaos, and to give some kind of meaning to it. But on the uh, the other side, your your fiction side, these are people who are known for distorting reality. Dis- the, it's in the distortion of the psychological condition that we learn something from ourselves about ourselves in the human condition.
1: Yes. Uh- well, of course, I mean, uh, not all of the, my 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 fiction is 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 in the category of magic realism, which is what you just described. Uh, but I do uh, admire the magic realist writers. Um, I would add Franz Kafka to that list right. uh, that you mentioned, and uh, I I don't really know why that appeals to me uh, so much. I, I think that, that if you put, let's talk about fiction now uh, for a moment. Yeah. If, if you put uh, fiction writers on a spectrum where on one end is is where the idea is, is most important, at one end and the other end of the spectrum, the character or the plot is most important. So you might put uh, Charles Dickens you know, with the character and plot on the idea, you might put um, uh, Franz Kafka, let's say. Uh, I'm closer to the idea part of the spectrum. And, and that may be related to, to the fact that I'm also a scientist. Um, uh, um, there's a little noise in the background, I can close it. Okay, good. Um, uh, so for me, the idea of of a novel, there should be an idea somewhere. Um, uh, That doesn't mean that that you have to hit your reader over the head with the idea, uh, a novelist didactic, I think fails as a work of art, but the idea is the starting point for me. Um, And I think that magic realist writers often have an idea that they're trying to convey. I think, Italo Calvino and, and certainly Franz Kafka, uh, that, that that they're talking about ideas as well as characters right. and story.
0: Would, would you think of yourself in terms of the Isaac uh, Berlin characterization as a fox or a hedgehog?
1: Well, I, I guess I'm somewhere in between. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh I I know it's a wonderful it's a wonderful characterization of different kinds of people. Um I mean at times I try to be the fox and at times I, at times I try to be the hedgehog, so depends on the situation. Um uh, and when I was growing up, uh uh as, as you mentioned, I had two two groups of friends. I had the scientist types, and those were right. my friends who who loved to do their math homework and who liked very definite answers to questions and and were were very deliberate. And then I had my my artistic type friends who wrote poetry, who who, who liked ambiguity, who uh, were more spontaneous, and I. And I love both groups of friends, and I easily went back and forth between the two of them and didn't think anything of it. But, but when I got to be in uh, right high school, maybe 16, 17 years old, I noticed that my friends and teachers and parents were, were gently n- trying to nudge me in one direction or the other, because I think it's easier to go through life if you're more of the scientist type or the more the, the artist type if you're one or the other there's there's a clearer path for you and if you're sort of in between as I
0: was the path is
1: is sort of mercury, murky, murky and, and
0: cloudy that explains the uh, dual appointment at MIT yes yes yeah. right uh, one day yeah. you're a hedgehog yes. and the next day you're a fox and you're able to make that transition right. with enormous ease right
1: yeah and i you know i also think i know that uh, that your your program is partly about uh, influential books when we were children. That I I I think that children have uh, many children, maybe most children have a, a natural interest and curiosity about about both the sciences and the arts. And when I say science and arts, I mean I'm using those as broad I mean broad categories of of a way of looking at the world and. I think that that many children have that inclination, have both inclinations, and that their their teachers sort of push them in one direction or the other. Sure, that's that's my hypothesis. I haven't been able to test it, Uh, but but children seem to have a a natural interest in the world in in all channels.
0: Uh, I think ki- chi- children, six-year-olds are, they're foxes. Th- they they see a thousand rabbit holes to go down.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: It's, it's a, it, somehow to lose that, you have to lose some of that to become a hedgehog. And I think probably in science, if you're going to succeed, you have to be a hedgehog.
1: Yes, you do. Um, and I know in my particular case that uh, I decided to go to graduate school in physics because I, I had that realization that you just mentioned, that you have to really bear down on one subject. Uh, but I continued to to write poetry and stories uh, in my spare time. I did not give that up. And uh, when I got to be in my mid-30s or so, um, and I had established my career as a scientist, I began to put more and more time into my writing.
0: So that's your your real comfort zone. Now, that that doesn't come as a huge surprise looking at your reading list. In fact, let's start with A Princess of Mars, uh, which is a great book, uh, you know, by uh, a writer, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who on his day outsold Hemingway, Fitzgerald, and Faulkner. I mean, he was a big success during his time. And his wish list for the afterlife was, I want to travel through the space to visit other planets. Sounds like a wonderful uh, man. This uh, novel that you, that's first on the list, The Princess of Mars was the first of 11 novels in a series called The Martian Series. And it featured John Carter, a Civil War veteran, which uh, uh, I think was uh, loosely based on Burroughs' own experience where he was a soldier uh, in Arizona at a fort there, basically patrolling the area to protect settlers against uh, Indian attacks. And in this particular story, John Carter suddenly is teleported to Mars in a very alien civilization and so we end up with something that is a bit of swordplay and uh, planetary romance and the key words I kind of take away from this book is quest, hero, imagination, odyssey, tribalism, and violence. All of the things you would expect a young boy growing up to want to know how those things work in the world. So yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about what age, I mean, were you in Memphis, Memphis as a boy when you read this?
1: Yes, uh, of course, Ed, uh, as you mentioned, Edgar Rice Burroughs was very well known in his time. Um, he was the, besides the Martians, Chronicles, a Martian series. He also was the inventor of the Tarzan series, yes. and most people, most people know him through the Tarzan series and not the Martian series. Right. Um, uh, but I was probably 12 or 13 when I first began reading his Martian series, and uh, there were many things about his books uh, that that compelled me. That interested me. Um, first of all, uh, being a, a budding scientist, I was interested in outer space and the planets. And uh, there's a little, there are bits in the book about Mars as a planet, uh, the red planet. It, it, it doesn't have uh, air, so you you need these these factories that produce oxygen. Uh, of course, that this is all in the, in Burroughs' imagination, but. Um, so there was, there was, there was, uh, it touched my scientific curiosity. Um, there were also these wonderful, uh, creatures that he invented. The Martians were these tall green men with, with six arms. Um, and that, that was, you know, fed my imagination, but I love the romance of it too. I mean, you know, at, at 13 or 14 years old, Boys are starting to get interested in girls. and <laughs> And there was this beautiful princess of Mars oh, yes. that John Carter uh, fell in love with and and she very grudgingly fell in love with him. and And so there was this 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 romantic love story that was in addition to the green, martians with six arms and and the red planet of mars so all of that to me was just a fantastic mix
0: <laughs> it it's a series that uh, inspired ray bradbury arthur c clark and carl sagan as well and it's, yeah it's been said that uh it was uh, the first space program was inspired by these by these stories. Yeah. I, I didn't know that.
1: Um, I, I I didn't know that those people were inspired by it. Um, there was a, a a Disney movie that was made from a, a couple of the books. I think it combined them, and I didn't like the Disney movie because it added uh, a supernatural element right to uh to the book i mean it to the film had a supernatural element that was not in the book and it sort of ruined it for me because i thought there was plenty of wonderful things in the books that were not supernatural and so that turned me off uh but i i'm delighted to hear that that carl sagan and Ray Bradbury were influenced by the books. I'm not surprised.
0: Yeah, they, they definitely were uh, from, from my uh, research on this. And you know the, the, the notion that this is kind of a romantic travelogue, and, and as, as well, it, one of the things, getting back to the, the fox and the hedgehog, it's been said of the series that there's not a lot of ambiguity. There's, the, there's good and there's evil here. There right. are forces of right and there are forces of wrong. You know which side you're rooting for. There's no right. kind of nuance as these green Martians are bad. They have to be defeated kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that that for children you you want a clear distinction between good and evil. And it's 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 us adults who like you know the complexity and ambiguity more. So I think that it's that it was perfectly suited for its audience. Of course I, you know, uh, I don't know whether you would con- consider four, 13 or 14 or 15 years old a, a child. Um I will confess something that okay. that I will occasionally at, at my ancient age go back and read one of those books even now and That's find pleasure weird. in it.
0: <laughs> now, uh, let me ask you do, you, do you read them to your grandchildren?
1: I haven't read any of them to my grandchildren. Um, I've, I've read many other children's books. My oldest grandchild is eight. Okay. So she's not quite old enough to, I re- right. think, really appreciate uh, uh the the Heinlein, I mean the the uh, Burroughs books, but I think when she gets older, that I will read read some of them to her.
0: One of the things that uh, I noticed is kind of a, a commonality for the from the books that I've been reading that you you read as a child is a kind of a bleak desert setting. I mean the the Martian setting is it's pretty bleak, uh, and of course. This reminds me of Dune. The setting Dune, there right. is also pretty desert-like right. and bleak. And right. then, of course, we turn to the Mag- Magus. That's not exactly uh, a desert, but it's a pretty remote uh, island that yes. could almost be on another planet.
1: It, you're right. Um, there was a wonderful movie made out of the Magus. Um, uh, I don't remember, I think. Maybe Ingrid Bergman was no. Uh, I can't remember who was in it, but it was right. It was great right movie. But yes, that's a very astute observation of yours, and and I guess I could lie on the couch for a few years and figure out what is the deeper significance of that.
0: <laughs> but that that kind of initial uh, boyhood attraction uh, to this these these kind of books, uh, you know we all have kind of psychological profiles that are kind of reflected in what we read. It's hard to know what's cause and effect if we read it because we're attracted to that or we we, we didn't think about it but now we're attracted because it's filled full of adventure and romance and possibilities that stick with us the rest of our life. We, we yeah. romanticize things because we have created a model of the world from our early reading where that model is what we then look to as to what is elegant, beautiful, and pleasing.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, it's sort of frightening how much of our worldview is formed at such a young age. Um, and and a lot of it lurks in the unconscious. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I read a, a, a book by a, a psych, psychiatrist called The Middle Passage, which goes into this in great detail about how a lot of the things that we do as adults are result of, of unconscious inclinations which were formed when we're children. And often we can't even remember events, experiences that form th- that worldview but they are fixed in our subconscious and then guide us for the rest of our, our lives. I mean, in general, I'm sort of, uh, I don't know what the right word is. I'm, I'm sort of amazed and, and uh, leery of how much of our actions come from the subconscious. We think that we know what we're doing, the conscious mind, but the conscious mind is only 10%. Uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg. and There's actually yes. an unconscious self there that's calling the shots.
0: Well, in, in, in some ways, going back to these childhood books is a kind of archaeology of uh, the psychic.
1: The, the archaeology of the unconscious.
0: It's what it is. it is. Because there are things that are planted there, which we don't really think about, but if they're kind of put together with a collection of books, so I start to see deserts in a lot of different places in different contexts as I start to, to get an image that psychologically this must be something that's still at play, even yes. on an unconscious basis.
1: Yes, yeah. So, so you're forcing people with your, with your program to delve into their unconscious. Um, in, a, in,
0: a, in a way, that's where the best writing comes from. And that's where creativity comes from. So if we're in a better contact, better connected to how those models came together, the gravity of force that made them come together the physics of childhood memory and psychology we start to get a better understanding of why i wrote that particular book in the way that i wrote it Mm -hmm. it came from a whole lot of forces and some of those are from that childhood experience yes i i agree let's look at the magus uh, John Fowle's book which was a book that I liked very much as well because we're, we're the same age and so 1965 was the year the the magus came out I mean the year before that John Fowle's book The Collector had been published but this particular book again it's a little bit like the Gabriel Garcia Marquez or George uh, uh, August, in a sense, it is the magical surrealism uh, kind of genre. So, uh, again, I, I, I see there's a connection there for you in terms of, of childhood interest th- that this would be a book of all the possible books that you read during that time is one that you think continued to have an influence. Maybe let talk a little bit about... Uh, you know, first of all, I'll set just a little bit of the background for the viewers who haven't read The Magus. It is a literary thriller set on a remote Greek island. The protagonist is a young Englishman named Nicholas Urfe, who has gone there to teach English in a school, and he meets this quite mysterious uh person, Maurice uh conscious, and they develop a kind of psych- psychological relationship, part of hypnosis, things that are going on that we don't quite understand. There's a lot of mystery involved in that relationship and in this uh, young man's life on, on the island. And so it, in some ways, it's it said that the, the, the whole island has this feel of exile from contemporary reality. So it is an right. alternative reality. And in, in some ways, it fits for me. The, the, I, I can foresee a little bit of Einstein's dream in this, where psychological reality is not as stable as we think it is. It's like time. It depends on the motion and the reference of the person who's experiencing it. And so the, the magazine in some ways has that same kind of distortion. And yeah. once you accept the distortion as the reality of it, you start to see that the human condition changes. It makes sense given what is going on.
1: Yes. And there's also, um, I mean I it's been many years since I've read the book and you probably read it much more recently than I have but there's there's a a woman a beautiful woman that the the young school teacher meets yes she she's somehow connected with Maurice the the magus yes. or the magician right um in fact it, but maybe Maurice that introduces uh the young school teacher to this woman and he falls in love with her right and See, I think romance is might be also a common denominator all, of all of these books.
0: It it started at twelve with that with the 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 tales of Mars, oh,
1: Mars. <laughs> right? Um, so,
0: but um, this, this 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 particular figure though is elusive. She, he, Fowler changes the name at one point. She's Julia, then she's Lily, then she's June, then she's Rose whatever name she has it's somehow Nicholas is like the puppeteer who's pulling the strings.
1: Well I think that the puppeteer is the Magus is Maurice. Correct. Um, who's who's pulling the strings and and after a while you're reading the book and as you s- said um, everything seems strange and there's an altered reality you start getting the feeling that this this Relationship that Nicholas has with this beautiful woman um, who has these many names is being fabricated. It's being manipulated yes. entirely by the Magus. And that was what uh, disturbed me about the book. And I, I have to admit that I like books that disturbed me even as a child. I mean, How did
0: this disturb you as a child when you were you're a kid growing up in Memphis? You're reading the Magus, this yeah. had to be a bit disturbing because it, it it is that kind of book.
1: Yeah, well, it, it disturbed me that, that because this relationship with between Nicholas and this woman, and, and I, I identified with Nicholas, of course, and uh, he was sort of academically inclined like me, and right, um. And the, the relationship that he had with this woman, I sort of imagined that that was a relationship that I was having with her. And then the realization that that maybe everything that this woman had been saying to me was was a facade, that it was all being told to her what to say by the magus, and that the magus was sort of contriving this entire relationship. And it, it it that disturbed me. Um, and uh, you know Fran, Franz Kafka, who was one of my literary heroes, uh, said once that he likes to to read books and to write books that bite and sting. Right. Right. And uh, I never thought of it in those terms, but I I do like to be disturbed uh, with books and with with films. And uh, I think that we we grow. By being disturbed as well as by being pleased, um, that 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 being pleased and being disturbed both enlarge our view of the world.
0: Yes, yes. And
1: because you're, if you're disturbed by something, you know that there there's that, that there's a thing that's deep in you that's reacting strongly, and so you're learning something about yourself when you are disturbed.
0: One of the things is that I've read about the, the Magnus, and, and, and just trying to remember my own memory of reading it, is this creation of kind of anything can happen. Right. world Where there are multiple meanings, that somehow you lose a bit of your bearing because we all seek a certain level of certainty and predictability. And what Mar- Maurice Conscious was able to do through Julie and others, is to manipulate and say, if you think that's what the meaning is, here's another one, here's another one, here's another one.
1: Yeah. And and to a budding scientist who likes certainty, that can be very disturbing. Um, A
0: a hedgehog would find that very disturbing.
1: The hedgehog would just bury deeper into the ground and not come out.
0: That, that, that's why I'd ask earlier about that, because I could see that this is the fox in you in the Magus, because there is not one answer, there's not one room to go to. There are multiple rooms in this mansion, Yeah. each of yeah. which have a mystery or a horror or a beauty attached to it.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, everything is unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen one day to the next. And uh, I don't know how Nicholas retained his sanity. In fact, I'm not sure that he did. I'm not sure that he did retain his sanity.
0: Well, that may be it. He may have gone back to the national health care in UK at, at that point to seek some very serious counseling after that kind of confrontation with an infinite reality that there is no good there's no bad there is nothing to hold on right. to there is a sense of vertical in that particular uh psychological exp- exploration so yes. that would have been something for uh a young teenager to have read and to assimilate it and particularly a young teenager who's gonna go on to to be a very distinguished scientist, uh, where, where that world is looking for very definite realities, very definite answers of yes and no, right and wrong. Well, I, think the,
1: I think the magus appealed to my artistic side. Um, I mean, it it, fri- it frightened my scientific side, but it appealed to my artistic side Right. To, to think that you could uh, distort reality in this way and in fact cast doubt on reality so that that, that reality sort of dissolves in, into a bog into a mist and there That's is no reality uh, I, I think that that appealed to my artistic side which
0: makes me ask the question, I'm just thinking about this now is that in some ways the the Magus world is a little bit isn't a little bit like the world of quantum physics where there is a degree of randomness of uncertainty
1: yeah well that that's true however and and the difference is in quantum physics and this is going to sound paradoxical in quantum physics we can quantify the uncertainty <laughs> There, there's in an which the
0: uncertainty is probabilistic.
1: <laughs> there's an e- equation that tells you exactly how much uncertainty there is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas could have used that in the magus. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. I'd like to move on to Mr. Tompkins in Wonderland by George Gamow, 1940 again, this I think is a very important uh, book uh, in in a lot of ways. Uh, You know, part of it's just fascinating. I always find it fascinating how things get published and things that don't get published. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know the backstory of this particular uh, publication, but apparently George had sent in the original story in 1938 uh, to uh, Harper's Magazine. It was rejected and it was rejected by probably a dozen other magazines as well he's now in a conference an international conference of theoretical physicists his own people and he is having tea with the uh grandson of charles darwin wow and he he mentions the the manuscript that harper's had turned down and others had turned down he says look i have a friend named cp snow and cambridge university why don't you send it to him and say that i recommended that you do so he did and cp snow loved it published it and published many other essays by the same author and ultimately cambridge university published a book of which Uh, Mr. Tompkins' wonderland stories uh, appeared. So his stories popularized things like theory of relativity, quantum theory, uh, and so as a result, I can see certain aspects of this, again, going back to Einstein's dream, where Mr. Tompkins starts his book with someone falling asleep in a dreamlike state. And in that dreamlike state, they are finding that their ordinary senses of psychology and reality are no longer accessible to them because they're in a different time frame. Now, right. to me, that is mind blowing because Ordinary human beings don't go around thinking of different time frames and different psychological states that could result from that. That takes a, an act of pure creativity and imagination to be able to do that. Well, he was and, he
1: was trying to explain the, uh, the theory of relativity. Right. So, so the 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 path forward for him was not as imaginative as let's say. Uh, Italo Calvino and in invisible cities. He, he, uh, I mean, and I'm not trying to diminish in any way that the, the importance and, and greatness of that book, but once you decide that you're going to explain the theory of relativity in a fanciful way, I think that the road is somewhat clear to you. Um, uh, it, you know, the, the, the altered world that the, Main character went into at the beginning of Mr. Tompkins and, and Wonderland, right. the altered world was a known world of relativity, um, and it was a world that had been described by Einstein. It wasn't a world that that came out of Gamow's mind whole cloth. The, the 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 character of Mr. Tompkins, of course, uh, came out of Gamow's mind, which is wonderful, um, and I think there was a professor who gave a lecture or something in the, in the book as well. So. Yeah, there uh, was. Yeah. That's why you fall asleep. <laughs> yes, exactly. That certainly <laughs> happened to me in many classes that I've given at MIT. Um, I gave one class where there was a, a, a student in the front row who was knitting while I was lecturing. <laughs> so I don't know whether it's better to knit or fall asleep in terms of the <laughs> professor, but anyway,
0: this happens to all of us. But it, it could be a metaphor for a word weaver. <laughs> but you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the character, the first part of the city speed limit. I mean, he wakes up, he's in this English village, and suddenly uh, pe- uh, the s- streets are shorter. Uh, the, the, the time stretches, and right. people age at different rates. The village clock showed half an hour had passed. But only five minutes on his watch, right? Yeah. So that suddenly he is totally confused. But the people in the village, this is totally ordinary. This is the way time is.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing that 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 I loved about the Gamal books, and I think there were several of them in the Mr. Thompson series. Yeah. And and you mentioned that C.P. Snope it. I, did, I didn't know that C.P. Snow was a publisher. He was probably a consultant for Cambridge University Press, but I right. I don't think yeah. that he was a publisher himself. No, he was anyway, no, I, Yeah. The, the thing that I loved about the Tompkins books, and of course I I did know something about the theory of relativity at that time, was the, the notion that you could convey science in an artistic manner, in a literary manner. That 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 idea that that's what really impressed me. That I hadn't seen science books before uh, that are also artistic. That that you would say are literature at the same time. So it it gave me the the it, it expanded my my horizon of possibilities for how to talk about science that, that that science and art were not mutually exclusive in the way that they are conveyed that you can you can convey something about science but also do it uh in a in an artistic literary way so that was the the idea that i took away from the Tompkins books
0: how old were you when you read read that book
1: oh I don't remember i mean i might have been 17. Do you remember when it was published? It published in 1940. You know, yeah, so, yeah. I think I was somewhere between 15 and 17 when okay. I read the first one. Um, and I had been, you know, I was interested in science, and I'd been reading science books, and, and I, I was acquainted with the theory of relativity, although I couldn't have written down the equations of the Lorentz transformation. Uh, so I, I knew sort of where Gamma was headed with the books, but I didn't realize that you could write about science in such a literary way, uh, an imaginative, almost a novelistic way. So that, that was news. That was news to me. And, and, okay. you know, part of my, my growth.
0: In, in other words you were able to see through his his book or books a kind of progression where you could tell scientific theory in a literary narrative way right as opposed to mathematical uh, form yeah or,
1: or straight or straight exposition um it, yeah th- th- this was he was appealing to a different sense organ of the reader right. You know, it wasn't just the brain that he was appealing to. It was the heart and the stomach. And and that got me to thinking, well, this is, you know, it was like a new tool in my toolbox. You know, sure. maybe someday I could do this. Um, it, it, it's, it's an interesting, it's, it's a bigger concept of, yeah. of, of what's possible and how to communicate with people. You
0: know, the... The one little footnote i would uh, i would put here is that mr uh Tomkins in wonderland is is actually it's a, it's a wonderful book but my my reservation and and it, it really is in contrast with your own work is that you are able to take the the science and put it in an artistic realm without the science part of it dragging clearly behind it like like tin cans on on a wedding car taking off kind of thing that he doesn't quite make that trend transition the velocity isn't there for me as a novelistic storyteller per se i can see what he's doing what he's trying but he i don't think he would have the same level of skills and part of it would be is I don't think English was his first language I think he was Russian mm-hmm. and yeah. so That's I right. think that there may have been that kind of language challenge plus his own reading as a child probably would have had a different kind of trajectory for him than the reading that that you had yeah as a child
1: well, his yeah. I, another way of saying what you're saying is that is the book is a is a bit didactic. Um, it is. You're 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 a little you're you're somewhat aware of, of getting a physics lesson. Yes. Whereas whereas I think that the the best works of art, the best films, um, like A Beautiful Mind, um, uh, the best books, the best fiction about science, um, and I'm thinking Richard Powers among other people,
0: right.
1: that the that you don't feel at any point like you're getting a lesson in science.
0: You're not getting it, a lecture.
1: Yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're
0: actually observing the human condition, right. and you're drawing your own conclusions from what you are processing. Right.
1: Right. And uh, I think that 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 in any work of fiction that that if you have a didactic purpose, that you're 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 doomed from the beginning. That uh, that uh, a novel or a film has to work as a, fir- as, a, as a work of art first. And then if, if you want to convey some information or some science or you know, any technical yeah. subject, it has to sort of seep in around the edges, but it has to be first and foremost a work of art because what you're ultimately trying to do in a, in a, in a work of fiction or any work of art, I think, is to appeal to your reader's emotions first. The, the intellect comes second, but yes. the emotion is the first thing that you're appealing to. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why, why novels and, and other works of art are so powerful, because our, our emotional selves are even more primitive than our intellectual selves. They're uh, and yeah. They're different, and they're, they developed earlier in our, in our history the, the, the part of the brain that deals with, with emotions the, the amygdala uh, was was developed before the cortex
0: sure.
1: and you know you see people sometimes where there's a conflict between their rational side and their emotional side and the emotional side usually wins. Sure.
0: Yes. Uh, this is David Hume. But, you know, the, the one thing with, with Mr. Thompson, uh, Tompkins going to Wonderland is it seems to me that what he was able to do was to give you permission to cross from science into literature, that he created a bridge. And it may be kind of a, a rickety one, but you were able to go across it because you could see here's someone who is actually a sci- who is a physicist, who is right. attempting to create a way of communication a Marshall McLuhan kind of way to make certain that the message is accessible to that primitive part of the human mind. Not the high level intellect part of the mind which can understand the underlying theory and mathematics, but the part of the mind which is removed from that.
1: Yes, I, I think you're right. And I, I never understood until you just said it now that the, the Tomskin's books gave me permission to do that. So you've been a wonderful shrink for me. Um, I
0: probably,
1: probably owe you 300 bucks an hour. Uh,
0: <laughs> you, you, you've been a wonderful guest. I mean, to be able to talk to a scientist and a novelist, uh, this is such an incredible opportunity. Uh, to, to look at that development on both sides. And, and I think it's a huge role model for uh, viewers, you know, young viewers, seeing how childhood reading is so important to the development of how you model the world because you, how you model the world is how you will process it the rest of your life. And you go from, from intersection to intersection, in some places there's a red light, in some places there's permission. And how that works out is often very random. You know, I don't know how that book found its way into your hands. Do you remember? Was it a gift? Was it from a library, a teacher?
1: The Tompkins book? Yeah. I I, I really don't remember. Um, uh, it's possible that a relative gave it to me Knowing that I had an interest in science, um, I just don't remember, uh, but it was certainly a very important gift, and <laughs> and I I try to give young people gifts, uh, books as gifts. Um, if if you know that if you know the child well enough, you can find just the right book to give them, and I think that you're really. You're really helping them. I mean, as, as you've been explaining over the last 45 minutes, uh, it's, it's, it's a real gift if you can give a, a person, especially a young person, a gift that really opens up their world. But it you can, have to so know them.
0: You have to know them. But if you can know them and you give them the right book, it gives them permission to be curious, to be creative, and to have an imagination. And... That's, that's not obvious that we give permission to children through our, the books that we, we give. That we may just find something that we, we saw a review without much thought and we give it to the child. But part of the reason for this show is for people to think long and hard. Those choices that you make will have profound implications all through the life of that child. That book that someone gave you on Mr. Tompkins' Wonderland allowed you to do something, to imagine something that otherwise maybe you wouldn't have imagined or imagined in a different way.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think giving permission to children is a wonderful way to say it because so often we're, we're telling children what they cannot do. You know we're we're closing doors for them rather than opening doors right
0: and i think that's the best kind of parenting when it comes to reading and many other things is to see here is a permission to go in this direction and you can see the wonder of that the glory of that the thrill of that and you can be part of something that is larger than yourself. I mean, you've talked about this before, uh, transcendence. As transcendence is that ability to take that permission and take it another level. Yes. And that's what I think you did with Einstein's dream from that book at 15 years old. That was the permission that allowed that book to come into being, to have a birth. I, you know, in fact, I get a couple of of quotes from from your book, uh, Einstein's Dream. In the world without future, each moment is the end of the world. What sense is there in continuing when when one has seen the future? I mean, I I I love the poetry, the elegance of that, and I can see how that came from these childhood books. And that, to me, gave me a little bit of a shiver. I have to say.
1: <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm in, in debt to you for for noticing these connections, uh, which some of which I didn't notice myself. Uh, so, so you are, you are serving the purpose of of a very intellectual shrink here.
0: Uh, (laughs) that's not the purpose the the purpose is hopefully to encourage parents teachers and loved ones to find books that will really engage young people that will make a a fundamental difference in in someone's life I mean people are so cluttered up with the addiction of what's on a timeline that they've lost the sense of wonder that comes from getting lost in a book and to get lost in a book is a wonderful journey
1: it is it is um uh i have a, there are about 20 books that have been very meaningful to me um as an adult right. and whenever i go to some where i'm going to be for two months or longer i take these 20 books with me um and uh, I, I, regard them as, as, as friends but as, as you say, uh, a, a book helps, uh, shape your world view yeah. and especially books that you read as a child.
0: Yes. Let's have a look at Dune, the classic Frank Herbert, 1965 novel. The words I pull from this are myth, intrigue, religion, power, predictions. And in fact, I had a, 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 a slight connection here. A, a screenwriter for a remake of Dune also did a script on his, on a book series that I write. And so hmm. I got a chance to uh, talk with him about his research into the, uh, again, we're back into the desert. Back into the desert, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and with some of the same big themes that we had before, mythology, religion, politics, imperialism, and uh, an effort at prediction. I mean, in some ways, Herbert, in an introduction of this book, talks about trying to predict the deep future. I think the the year that Dune is set place is the year 24,000. We're in the year 2021, so it is some distance in the future, but, it is a time after which there's been a war between man and machine and there's been a new law that no machine may be invented that will compete with the mind of man that man's mind is the superior one in 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 this world Uh, and the world is not this planet it's uh, our uh, Arrakis Arrakis, which is a desert planet, and Arrakis Mm -hmm. Apparently the uh, um, main, one of the main parts of of this story is this melage, this spice mm-hmm. that's used for memory, used for travel, uh, it's quite valuable. And again, it creates the, the kind of mind games. And again, we're back to the Magus, where the Dune is it's combining magus with with the red planet right where you have a desert (laughs) and at the same time you've got the political psychological mind games a kind of a maurice conscious kind of world that that's going on this one induced by uh by chemicals so you got game of thrones uh like medieval feudalistic uh, world where no machine may be made in the liken- likeness of man. Again, were you a teenager when you first came across uh, Dune, the the novel? Uh,
1: I think I was. Um, do you remember when when Dune was published?
0: 1965.
1: Yeah, that would have been uh, my last year of high school. Okay. And uh, I did I did read science fiction at that time. Um, you can put science fiction on a spectrum where you have hard science at one end, like Arthur C. Clarke, and then you've got fantasy at the other. Right. And uh Dune uh is sort of closer to the fan- fantasy end. Uh there, there's, you know what, there's a fair amount of there's some supernatural stuff. Of course, it, the, the, the melange, the, the spice uh, has, right. has sort of magical powers. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of on the edge of the kind of science fiction that I read. Um, but I thought that the characters were, were wonderful. Uh, it, it was a whole world that that Frank Herbert had imagined. Just the way that Edgar Rice Burroughs imagined the entire world of, of the Martian series, and uh, I, I was, uh, I remember, I, I was fascinated by the, by the the technology, that that was used to live in the desert. That like it was something like the stilt suits that preserved your your bodily fluids if you sweated. If you peed, all of that those liquids were saved and re- recycled because liquid water was so rare on on this planet. And I just thought that that was, you know, a wonderful invention of the mind. These stilt suits that that the dune inhabitants wore.
0: Yeah. Well, again, I think part of Dune is that notion of a creativity of uh, predicting what will happen technologically into the deep future and what it will do to the human mind and the human condition again psychologically if you have this powerful mélange that you can take uh, take ingest it's a little bit like uh, huxley's soma in brave new world except soma couldn't be used uh, as fuel to exceed uh, the speed of light. Right. Um, Well,
1: as I remember, the the, the spice, the melange, gave you uh, sort of magical powers. I mean, you you could foresee the future and other things. So, I don't think that that was based on real science or technology. That was just imagination of of herbert um, uh, but you know like like game of thrones uh there were there were all of these different uh feuding uh empires in dune uh different h- houses ro- royal houses that were all competing with each other and uh i, I found that interesting too. I, I, I think one thing that, as I said, that I really loved about that book and about the Martian series is the ability of the writer to create an entire world, um, right. not just one story, but, but imagine all the details, how the society would work, um, uh, that sort of complete view of, a, of an alternate reality of of Frank Herbert and uh Edgar Rice Burroughs and and other writers um I can't remember the the author of of Game of Thrones uh the uh, the writer who wrote the original books um the, that I admire that ability to 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 imagine an entire world with all of its small pieces
0: yeah I mean that that is uh uh, again, em, em, I guess, empowering, because in, in a sense, in science, when you're writing, you're imagining much smaller worlds, confined worlds. They're not open-ended. We are very,
1: uh, you're very confined. Uh, I think uh, Richard Feynman, the great physicist, once said that 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 science is imagination with a terrible straitjacket on. <laughs>
0: That's something and, Feynman would say. <laughs> and this and the,
1: the straitjacket that he was referring to is, of course, all of the known laws of physics of nature and the way that the world behaves. You, you can't invent a new theory of gravity where apples fall up instead of down. Right. Um, so you've got you've got this large body of, 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 of experimental evidence about the way the world works, and you have to sort of find creativity within those constraints, like like writing a sonnet where you've got this fixed rhyme and meter scheme. So you have to create within that constriction. Uh,
0: and that's that's the glory of art, is that those kinds of straitjackets can be cut away, and you can actually create an aesthetic alternative reality and populate it with creatures and people and set them at one another to see what that interaction is going to be yeah and and let the the readers decide
1: yeah but in order to cut away the straitjacket you first have to know that there is a straitjacket yes and yes. and 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 a lot of times we're not aware of the uh superficial constraints that we're acting under uh that that don't really need to be there uh and and the first step to this kind of broad creativity that you're talking about is is to see the straitjacket right see the constraint that you've been unnecessarily operating under and then to cut it away
0: uh, and you, you think Dune is one of those books, like Magus, that allows you to see that actually the constraints that you think are on your imagination are self-imposed? That You can see someone like Frank Herbert is able to go beyond that? Uh, that becomes inspirational?
1: I think so. I mean, Frank <laughs> Herbert was not worried about being scientifically accurate, as, say, Arthur C. Clarke was in his writing. Um, so so he, he sort of cut away all possible constraints and just let his imagination run wild. And uh, I found that very liberating. Um, so um, the different kinds of writers and right. Some, some, some writers do work better under constraints and some writers work better with no constraints. Uh, but I, I like to experience all kinds of writers to see everything that's possible.
0: It, 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 what's very interesting is that it, in some ways with a science background, you kind of start with a straitjacket that needs to be cut away. Where right. someone like Herbert, who is not a scientist, Right. has less cutting away. I mean, he may have he, he never, other things that constrained him, but he doesn't have a coherent ideology or philosophy which science would provide that would be an obstacle to overcome.
1: That's right. And as I mentioned earlier, um, when I first began writing fiction, I started every paragraph with a topic sentence, which is what I had learned in nonfiction writing, which which is a constraint of a type Sure. and then i eventually i realized that that was really a very bad form it was almost fatal that i had to yes. cut away that 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 mental conception and realize that you that, that you should not start paragraphs with topic sentences when you're writing fiction
0: correct so
1: that's an example a clear cut example of the kind of constraint we're talking about
0: right right so i think the next book uh, to go to is A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway, which is, is it a memoir? Is it fiction? Is it both? Here we have, again, a distortion uh, that is a little bit common with uh, some of the other books that we've been discussing about. An unknown writer living in Paris in the year, from 1921 to 1926, at a time when there was a uh, a literary life populated with James Joyce, Wynnum, Lewis, Scott and Zelda, Fitzgerald, Uh, and Hemingway uh, was in the thick of it. And basically this was his way of trying to reconcile his position amongst that artistic community, his way of trying to understanding the creative, imaginative facilities of other people who are around him, and a way to kind of present himself in the way he wanted the public to perceive him. Yeah. Now, again, I suspect you were a teenager when you read *A Movable Feast*. Yeah. Was was this a book that somehow? I mean, it's very romantic, like the other stories, the the right. fiction stories. Of you know being in an exotic location, being young, being artistic, being creative. How how did that impact you as, as a young teenager?
1: Well, he he says something in the book that that struck me then, and, and I still remember it. And because it, when I read that book, I was. I was beginning to write short stories myself. I mean, they weren't any good, but I was beginning to to stretch my wings a little bit as a writer. And he says somewhere in that book uh, that a writer can leave out, I I think he was speaking about a fiction writer, uh, can leave out anything as long as he knows exactly what he's leaving out. And the way that I interpret this is that that as a fiction writer, you are creating a world. And of course, uh, Frank Herbert and and Edgar Rice Burroughs did this in the extreme. but, But every novelist is doing it to some extent. You're creating a world. And if you understand that world fully enough, then the, there's there's a submerged level of 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 understanding of the world that the reader will will feel and does not have to be conveyed explicitly. Uh, uh, re- readers readers learn about a world that's been created, uh, whether it's a children's book or an adult book, in, in many subtle ways. And it can be just a single word that suggests a whole mentality uh, or a whole way of living, a whole ethos. And if the writer understands, has, has in his mind, has created the world with enough detail and enough richness, then even very slight literary gestures will convey that world to the reader. It doesn't all have to be spelled out. Whereas... If you haven't created that infrastructure, uh, that part of the iceberg below the surface for yourself and your imagination, then you can't uh, you can't leave out the fact that the that the killer was wearing white gloves, or or you know at at, at the counter or whatever. Um, uh, so that 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 idea uh, struck me uh, as, as the need for the writer to, to fully develop the world not not all of it ends up on the page but in the writer's mind the world has, has, is complete um, um, you, you mentioned when you were characterizing the book uh, uh, a movable feast that it was the way that Hemingway wanted others to view him um, there was a, a recent uh, documentary about Hemingway uh, on a television documentary, a PBS in the United States. There was a television, sure. public television documentary about Hemingway, and it showed j- just how much he tried to manipulate his public persona. Right. I, and it, and it, so,
0: it, it's been said that. The, uh, the movable feast was was part of uh, Hemingway's agenda, to to, to basically create uh, the landscape of what Paris was, his importance in that, and in some ways he kind of talked trash down to other people around him, uh, you know, particularly F. Scott Fitzgerald, who uh, he seemed to have a certain amount of. Uh, envy about uh, his right, success so
1: because rivalry between the two of them. yeah there was well,
0: a rivalry between the two so he he would he would paint uh fitzgerald in ways that would be less than flattering and so that sometimes writing can be beautiful but it may have an agenda that's serving a purpose that seduces you but seduces you to a view that actually is quite warped and distorted in a way that doesn't show a good part of the human condition. It shows yeah. a dark side of the human condition. And that sometimes elegance and beauty can lead us to darkness. Yes, I, I
1: agree. Um I, I think a lot of the Grimm's fairy tales are in that category. And, yes. and 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 these days there's been sort of a reevaluation of the Grimm's fairy tales and and some parents don't want their children to read them because they have this dark side to them
0: yeah well it, it, again children are, are so resilient and, and, and in some ways that darkness is less disturbing for a child than it is for an adult we project onto children all kinds of things as you say When's the last time you've dropped to your knees in a park and looked closely at a blade of grass? Or what's crawling on that blade of grass? It's very rare for an adult to do that. If an adult does that, they probably think, you know, bring, bring the, the net and the straight jacket. This person isn't quite right.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So the,
0: So 1964, when that book came out, it was interesting. Uh, This is the year of a movable feast. Just, uh, I always find this a little bit of fun. It was Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, the Supreme Court of the United States allowed that to be sold. And again, I've got a connection because Barney Rossett was a mentor of mine at, at Grove Press in New York. And Barney spent a fortune getting that through the Supreme Court. So Henry Miller was able to come back to America uh, without being in a brown bag. J, uh, J.G. Ballard's The Terminal Beach, Saul Bellows, Herzog, Ian Fleming's You Only Live Twice, Ken Kesey's Sometimes a Great Notion, Vladimir Nabokov for The Defense, uh, and Anne Rand, The Virtue of Selfishness, all came out the same year as The Movable Feast. Uh, yeah. so, so that was a, a bumper crop year. And again, we start to see that the way childhood is, the way we get influenced is the random way a book came your way. I don't know who gave you a copy of Immovable Feast, but if they had given you maybe uh, Ken Kesey, sometimes a great notion, that would have been a different a different trajectory, yeah. opened up a different pathway for you.
1: Yeah. I did, I did read the, the Ian Fleming, James Bond's books. And, uh, I remember when the, the very first James Bond movie came out. Um, right. uh, I don't remember, was it, was it from Russia with love or I can't remember the very first one. It was around
0: 1965,
1: right. <clears throat> uh, that, that made a huge impression on me. So yeah. I, I didn't write, I didn't mention the James Bond's books to you because right. I was a little older when I started reading them, but, but I, I thought that they were wonderful.
0: Well, I'm glad you added that, because I think they are wonderful, they do open up another world. And it's a, a world that would be familiar to John Carter.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, except the difference is that, that James Bond had many beautiful women who are surrounding him, and, and John Carter was interested only in one, the Princess of Mars.
0: Well, th- this, th- this is, this is a straight Jack of the odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think I've kept you quite a long time and I know you've got things to do there in Maine and maybe you could just end by saying, uh, a little bit of the experience of what it is to be on the show. And, uh, so that uh, we'll have a little bit of a trailer saying whatever you want to say.
1: Well, um, I was flattered when you invited me to be on the program and, uh, we're, I think 11 time zones apart, uh, I'm in uh, the Boston area or actually I'm in Maine right now on the East coast of the United States. You're in Bangkok. Um, so it's, it's, it's also a marvel of of technology that we can even communicate with each other and see pictures of each other uh but I think that uh a program that that focuses on uh childhood reading experiences and, and uh, as childhood influences influences is, is a, a wonderful idea um I haven't come across it before I think it's uh uh it's good for parents uh young parents uh and uh, you've also made me think about some of the the connections and, 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 and ways that that my childhood reading have shaped me uh, connections that I hadn't thought about before. So I think that you your, your program is, is also influencing your your guests as well as your your viewers. Uh, so I, I thank you for that. Um,
0: that, that's uh, very, kind, very kind of you, Alan. And uh, I've noticed that you, you've you had uh, with your daughter, Elisa uh, a foundation in Cambodia where you've built do- dormitories for uh, young university students, which is wonderful work. I've been in and out of Cambodia a number of times, and I also mm-hmm. have some charitable uh, work that I do. So I want to applaud you for that. It's something you never mentioned. You keep it under wraps. Uh, it shows a beautiful soul that you that you put that in and next time you find yourself in bangkok please let me know my wife and i would love to take you for dinner well
1: thank you christopher i I would love to meet you in the flesh but it's it's i enjoyed meeting you virtually
0: it's been a pleasure thank you alan okay thank you christopher bye for now